My argument would be the only way you will stimulate those feelings of engagement in people and therefore mitigate the risk of exhaustion, the only way to do it is to invest in people's jobs. There is no communication strategy or vision statement that is going to elicit feelings of vigor, absorption and dedication. Investing in people's job resources and mitigating the demands that they have in their day-to-day work might well produce those feelings of engagement and that's good for everyone. How do you feel about your job? Do you enjoy your work? Do you wish you could make it better? With the levels of stress and burnout in healthcare at a very high level, you may well think that the only way to solve the issues is to reduce demand and workload. But we know that this is easier said than done, and it's going to take a long time. Fortunately, there's another strategy to help beat burnout and to help people love what they do again, and that is job crafting. But what is job crafting and how do we do it well? Now, while it may seem counterintuitive that helping people do more rather than less will make people happier and enjoy their work, there's a growing body of evidence that it actually works. So this podcast episode is a live You Are Not A Frog panel discussion recording which took place at the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management International Online Conference in November 2022. I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss how to help people make their own jobs better. So listen to this episode to find out what job crafting actually means and how it can help you feel more positive about your work. The evidence-based actions that you can take to craft your own job and some surprisingly simple actions you can take in your own organisation to help other people craft their jobs too. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog the podcast for doctors and other busy professionals in high-stress, high-stakes jobs. I'm Dr Rachel Morris, a former GP, now working as a coach, trainer and speaker. Like frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, many of us don't notice how bad the stress and exhaustion have become until it's too late. But you are not a frog. Burning out or getting out are not your only options. In this podcast, I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts and inviting you to make a deliberate choice about how you will live and work so that you can beat stress and work happier. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours? then it's time to get your life back. And that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60 minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this live podcast panel session all about job satisfaction, job crafting, and how to find joy at work at the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management's Online International Healthcare Leadership Conference 2022. This is also going to go out as a You Are Not a Frog podcast recording. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Morris. I host the You Are Not a Frog podcast. I'm an executive coach, and I'm a former GP and medical educator, and I help doctors beat burnout and work happier. And that is what the podcast is all about. And in this session today, we're going to be exploring the science of joy at work 
We're going to look at how job crafting can help with this in healthcare, and we'll be discussing how individuals can dramatically change how they feel about their work by making some small changes. And then we'll finally finish off by thinking about what organisations need to do to enable this. So first of all, I'd love to introduce you to our esteemed panel today. So I'm really pleased to be joined by, first of all, Kirsten Armit. And Kirsten is the FMLM's Director of Research. She's the Director of FMLM Applied, and she's also a PhD candidate at Bayes Business School at the University of London. I'm also joined by Colin Lindsay. Now, Colin is a Professor of Work and Employment Studies at the University of Strathclyde. He holds a PhD in Employment Studies and spends much of his time working with employees and leaders, both in the public and the private sectors, on all sorts of issues relating to workplace practices for employee engagement, well-being and innovation. So welcome, Colin. It's brilliant to have you with us. I'm also incredibly grateful and very pleased to have Dr. Dal Hotty with us. Now, Dal is Director of Leadership, Development and Education at the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management. And she's also a consultant paediatric nephrologist at Great Ormond Street Hospital. And Dal has jumped in last minute to join the panel. So thank you so much, Dal. So first, Colin, I'd love to ask you, most of us think that in healthcare at the moment, in order to find joy at work and to be happy, you just need to make the job better. You make, need to make the job easier to do and cut down on the workload. Now, I know that you have a slightly different take on this. Is that right? That's partly right, Rachel. The first thing I want to say, and I think I can speak for all of us on this discussion, no one would detract from the idea that NHS professionals, leaders, managers and, and healthcare managers across the sector are under tremendous pressure. And personally, I, I vote yes in terms of more resources for the sector and better pay for everyone and less demands and pressure on people. However, maybe to give a little bit of background, I spend a lot of my time working with public, but mainly private or sector organisations who also face uh, incredible pressures. The uh, crisis is kind of the new normal in all sorts of sectors. So many of the organisations I work with would start, start from the same starting point. We've got fantastic people who are under tremendous pressure and we need to find ways to alleviate that pressure. However, reducing the demands on those people is really challenging because of the types of services or products that we deliver. My and my, my colleagues weigh into trying to think about those kind of problems is to think about how we can balance job demands and job resources. There's a very well-established research agenda that basically says, if you want to know why people burn out on you or experience exhaustion in the workplace, it's basically about their job. Job demands are things like having too much work to do, having very restricted time in which to do that work, and having cognitively challenging work, and also being pulled in different directions. None of these statements will be foreign to NHS leaders and professionals. I think all of those are probably common experiences. What we know from a lot of research over the last 20 years, much of which I've been involved in, is that if we don't do something to alleviate the pressures of those kind of job demands, burnout and exhaustion is a real risk. But then what do we do if we don't have resources in which to reduce the demands on our people? Do you would argue that the answer, again, lies in people's jobs? And we call it the job demands resources theory because our argument is if people feel under excessive demands through their jobs, too much work to do, too little time to do it, pulled in different directions, that can lead to strain and burnout. However, if we invest in people's what we would call job resources, that mitigates the risk of employees burning out. And that includes employees in the health and care sectors. 
job resources, it's a kind of jargony phrase. It basically just means good quality jobs and good quality people management. By job resources, we mean things like, do you feel supported by your team? Do you feel backed up by your line manager? Do you feel that you get good feedback on your performance? Do you feel that you have a good sense of autonomy and control over your work? Do you feel that you have the opportunity to be developed as a person? There's a substantial evidence base that says even people experiencing significant job demands are less likely to burn out and more likely to deliver innovation and high performance in organizations. If we can balance job demands, if we can reduce them, it's great. But if we can balance them with investments in job resources, really great feedback, really great learning, really great support, then we can mitigate the risk of burnout and actually we can arrive at a more engaged workforce. Tell us, if you don't mind, what you mean by employee engagement, because it's a term that's bandied around a lot and I never really quite understood what it actually means until I spoke to you a few weeks ago. So there's a big industry out there selling sometimes relatively dubious employee engagement tools. What we mean by employee engagement, we actually use the term work engagement. And we would argue that there's actually a very robust conceptualization and robust evidence base around the concept of work engagement. What do we mean by work engagement? By work engagement, we mean, sorry for the jargon, an effective motivational state of work-related well-being. And what we really mean by that is that we're asking people about how they feel inside when they go to work in the morning. So the way that we often break that down is to ask questions of people in three broad areas. One is, do you feel invigorated by your work? Please stay with me. I know NHS managers and leaders and employees under pressure. If I ask a question, which is one of the questions we ask, when you get out of bed in the morning, do you feel energized by the idea of going to work? Maybe it depends what morning we're talking about. But we ask a series of questions around this idea that work creates a sense of vigor and energy in people. So that's part one of work engagement. Part two is the idea that you feel dedicated to your work because it's meaningful. So you have a sense of being able to get your arms around your work and understand why it's important to do this work well. So we would call that dedication. And then the last component of work engagement, we would call absorption, which the way that I often describe this is I happen to have a great job. So there are lots of times where, for instance, at the end of this working day, I'm sure I'll say, oh my goodness, where did the working day go? I've had so many interesting things to do, including this podcast and this discussion, that the time has just flown. I've become absorbed in my work. When people answer questions positively around the sense of vigor that their work provides, the sense of dedication and meaning that their work provides, and the sense of absorption that their work provides, then that is being highly engaged in the workplace. Those measures, the same kind of questions that I ask people around that, have been asked of thousands of employees across many sectors, including many NHS employees, over 20 years. And we know that how you answer those kind of questions around work engagement is really important to things that we all care about, like well-being, absence, long-term health conditions, and performance of clinical and other teams. My argument would be the only way you will stimulate those feelings of engagement in people and therefore mitigate the risk of exhaustion, which is another great output of high levels of work engagement, the only way to do it is to invest in people's jobs. There is no communication strategy or vision statement that is going to elicit feelings of vigor, absorption and dedication. Investing in people's job resources and mitigating the demands that they have in their day-to-day work might well produce those feelings of engagement and that's good for everyone yeah and that is so interesting because certainly I know that when people ask us 
to maybe go and do some well-being stuff often it's because they've done a, a an employee engagement survey and it's come out really bad so please can you come in and make the employee engagement survey better and you know you say well actually one-off training is is not going to do that but what you're saying is if you help people with getting better feedback better learning and support that will increase employee engagement now I'm sure that actually reducing the other demands like actually reducing workload will as well but when you're in a very difficult situation and that is very tricky and and almost impossible if you start investing in their job then you can actually tip the equation in a little bit of a different direction as well have I got that right? Exactly right. Of course, a priority must be to try to reduce the demands on employees wherever we can. In lieu of that, though, it, we have a very strong evidence that, base that says all other things being equal, the job demands that people are under will, will have less impact on their well-being and burnout risk if we make the right kind of investments in job resources around feedback and learning and development and and a sense of control and autonomy in your work, stimulate feelings of engagement that we just talked about. You feel absorbed in your work, you feel dedicated to it because you think you want to get it right, because you have control over it and you have an understanding of it, and you feel invigorated by the work because of high levels of job quality. Invest in those resources, they're going to increase people's well-being and engagement, and that mitigate the risk of burnout. And does this actually work in healthcare? And was, has the evidence come from healthcare environments as well as corporates? We've been doing this for 20 years. A lot of research, the, the, the very initial studies around work engagement were perhaps unsurprisingly often focused on health professionals because they were at high risk of burnout 20 years ago as well, and perhaps always have been. So we do have quite a rich evidence base from public organisations, from the NHS and from other healthcare providers. Perhaps the demands on these employees and leaders are substantial compared to any other sector but so as the evidence that these kind of investments can actually make a difference. So Colin what sort of interventions have you seen that actually does help invest in these job resources to increase feedback learning and support? What advice is your organisation giving people about this? I would constantly say to my students it's jobs that really define people's experiences in the workplace and so what we tend to do with businesses is to try and recalibrate and refocus investments around HR and the workplace to focus on enhancing job quality in the kind of measures that we've already discussed. A lot of this isn't rocket science. If, if you think about, if you've got people who are expressing the idea that they don't receive adequate feedback in terms of feedback about how they perform and the contribution that they make, there are some relatively straightforward fixes and that we work with businesses on to try and improve the regularity, the quality and the consistency of the feedback that people receive. There are some, some areas of, of job resources that are rather more tricky and take a little bit more thought in terms of how we might design in better job quality. Clearly, one, one that's, that's really tricky and challenging often, often is the sense of control and autonomy that people have in the workplace. We know that if we can create a greater sense of control and autonomy, over people's work, if we can reduce any unnecessary sign-offs and micromanagement and empower people to make their own decisions and solve problems collaboratively, those are the kind of interventions that might have a payoff in terms of work engagement. We can also maybe talk about a concept that we use called job crafting, which is basically saying, if you don't have the job resources, if you're not happy with the feedback or learning opportunities or design of your job, to what extent do people have the scope? to craft, shape, 
change their job from the bottom up? And what can managers and leaders do to empower people to take control and craft their own work? I think this concept of job crafting is so interesting and so important. And I'm sure that people that are listening and watching this, some may feel that they are able to craft their job much more than others. But I'd just like to bring Kirsten in here, because Kirsten, I know that you actually teach about job crafting. How would you define job crafting in the context of healthcare? I think it, it, it perhaps doesn't necessarily matter about the context because this is a very individual level activity with the support about managers and organisations um, and everything they play an important role. But because this is something that people can do, I guess, of their own initiative, and it could be sort of small changes to sort of larger changes that they might make that may or may not actually be visible to other people, particularly if it's small crafting. But this happens in a variety of ways in healthcare. And as Colin rightly points out, the original research actually took place in healthcare. They weren't looking for job crafting. It was just something that they appeared when they were looking at the experiences and the relations that hospital cleaners actually had in a hospital in the States. So this shows up um, at all um, levels, right from hospital cleaners to, you know, very sort of senior leaders. Um, And it's often happening unknowingly. So when you tell people about the job crafting theory and explain it a little bit, often people go, oh, that's what I was doing. Okay, now I've got a name to to attach to it. But you can also be a bit more explicit about, I guess, uh, teaching and giving people insights and having those conversations with people to help them think through as individuals how they might craft their role, but actually also how you might do that on a team basis. People come up with some fantastic examples ranging from things that they did in terms of the relationships that they built. For example, one of the students I was talking with recently talked about being asked to redesign a particular patient pathway. And she could have done that from a desk, potentially, maybe having a conversation with a few people. But instead, what she did is used it as an opportunity to develop greater insights and relationships about that whole patient journey. So she went out and she she followed ambulance staff and spoke to ambulance staff. She spoke to ED staff. She spoke to primary care. She spoke to others out there in the system. She spoke to doctors, nurses, a range of other people. And what's that, what that has done is obviously helped with the particular piece of work that she was asked to do in designing that pathway. But it's actually given her much greater insight and a range of relationships across that organisation, which are actually proving very useful to her now. But then there's also examples of how people might move stuff in and out of their portfolios at work. So, for example, clinical leaders taking on IT as part of their portfolio of work because they've got an interest in how IT is actually rolled out across the organization and the clinical leadership that's necessary behind that. And then people might make choices about joining particular committees or task groups or taking on greater responsibility for educating and training because that's within their areas of interest. So there's numerous examples and I'm fairly sure the people that are listening and uh, on this webinar could probably cite some of their own examples of how they've crafted their own roles and careers over time. Kirsten, we've got a question. Is it possible to job craft when there are very specific job descriptions 
in the healthcare environment. So if you know your job, you know exactly what you've got to be doing from dawn till dusk, and there doesn't seem to be any flex. How does job crafting work in that sort of a role? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I guess this sort of harks back to some of the original research as well, where there were some fairly tight job descriptions that might have been put around those cleaning staff that were being interviewed in that in that research. But they found little ways of, um, I guess, sort of job crafting. So they might have very strict instructions, for example, about actually what they were supposed to clean. But what they found was that people were taking a real interest in the patients. They wanted to make sure that the patient experience was really good, that relatives were looked after. So they were doing things like making sure that relatives got to their cars okay after visiting a, a patient. They did things like changing the sort of artwork that was on the walls to sort of you know, change things up occasionally and create a nice environment. So there are possible little things that can be done that actually have a significant impact to individuals there is a piece of research that looked at how people do this in both high-ranking positions and in low-ranking positions. And they found that in high-ranking positions, they had constraints as well, even though you might perceive that people have more autonomy at senior levels. They also sort of have their own sort of constraints and perceptions of what they can and can't do. But for people in a sort of lower-ranking position, they were able to job craft by having conversations with their colleagues uh, with their line manager appealing to them and showing up what what are their strengths and what would they potentially add by doing this additional task or doing something differently or developing new relationships that would actually add to the particular team the service or the organization in some way so it's one of those things where I think if there's a will there's a way but it does lead to a very important point that if everyone decides that they want to um, you know job craft in a particular team and then there's not enough people to actually get the work done that then that can cause problems as well so even though this is an individual level activity it is being mindful of the wider impact um, that changes that you make might have and that's a really good point I'd just like to come to Dal now Dal have you got any examples of when you as a clinician have crafted your own job I get it You'll push for time and with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops top five episodes sorry and leap into your happiest thriving self again just go to you are not a slash quiz yeah i currently hold four roles so i have crafted my work if you like um i think for me it all goes to what and um, what i really like in life i like change i like new opportunities i sort of get drawn into these opportunities and jump in and new opportunities lead to other opportunities and, and that's the truth for me um but with all those opportunities you have to make choices there's only so much time you have in a day so you, you know you have to then start making some key decisions about what things I'll take on it simultaneously and so I've always tried to do things where there's fixed commitments and you you, you can't really change what's expected or the timetable if you like 
mixed with ones where you've got some variability. So for example, one of my roles is a coach and I can then fit in the coaching around some of the other fixed commitments that I might have. And so in some ways, the crafting hasn't made me less busier, it's made me more busier, but actually I'm energized by it. And so actually I don't feel burnt out by it. Um, and I know there's times when I need a break and so choose to have regular holidays and things so that my energies are sustained. The other area I think is, is crafting the day and being really conscious about how you craft your day. Um, and I know that we all may have fixed commitments that we have to do, but how we choose to do them, there is a degree of autonomy and control you can exercise. And just even having that little bit of autonomy and control can make such a difference in terms of your well-being. I mean, certainly during COVID, I remember saying to our juniors, when do you want your break? And just that one decision, that sense of autonomy really made a difference to their sense of well-being on that shift. So in terms of crafting my day, for example, I won't open my emails until 9, 10 um, a.m. So I've got an hour or two hours in the morning to do some exciting stuff, like we're designing classroom activities or coaching, doing something interesting, which we are most energized, where I can just get things done and not be distracted by hideous emails that are coming through. Um, other things I'll do is I'll make sure I punctuate my day with regular breaks. And they're usually five-minute breaks. So it's usually just walking down the corridor and getting a coffee, but it's still a little break and it's taking me away from that work. So those kind of things can make a real difference. I also recognize when my energy is down. So at 7 p.m., it's taken me twice as long to do something really simple. So I'll do as much as I can and then stop. This is no point in me then spending an hour doing something that normally takes five minutes. I'll get up early in the morning. I'll have it done in five minutes. So I can move on to the next activity. So it's, it's you know, just get to know yourself, understand your energy levels um, and mix the good with the bad. Like always give yourself work that you really enjoy. So don't have a day of just abysmal work. There's always going to be elements of your work that you don't enjoy, which has to be done. That's part of your job. But there's also elements that you really enjoy. So that's what energizes you and restores that balance. So I think with time and practice, I have learned to craft my day or my my commitments. But uh, yeah, it's not easy. And you often have to give yourself permission to do it. it. It's not something that people will give you permission to do. So you really have to make the time and effort to do it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It is all about permissioning yourself, isn't it? And taking that locus of control for yourself. And I must admit, as you were talking, I was thinking, how does this work if you're a trainee or a junior doctor and someone has put in the chat here? I hope that job crafting and autonomy can be prioritised more for junior doctors rather than getting those opportunities once you're a consultant. But I guess as a consultant, you've got a lot of responsibility as well. So you, you do also have quite a lot of restrictions as a consultant. But what have you noticed in your junior colleagues have been ways that they have been able to job craft that has been successful and helpful for them, even within the constraints of a training role where you are largely doing service delivery and you're on the wards and you've got to just see those patients and you're very much timetabled and rostered in. How can people job craft then? Yeah, that's certainly what Kirsten said earlier about the rank, high or low rank. It can be quite difficult to craft, to be honest. I think for juniors, yeah, especially when they've got shifts, it feels like it's all very rigid and constrained and that's the only thing you can do and often I find that I will often come across juniors who are struggling who then ask for the flexibility rather than proactively asking for some of that flexibility and I think that's a real problem as well I think one of the things I always say to the juniors is like you know contract amongst yourselves as a team contract when do you know you need to have a little break who's going to do what work so actually 
there is something about being a team player and working as a team and making those decisions. And I think even those small elements of choice can make a difference to the day. Um, and don't be afraid to say, I'm, I'm exhausted. I need a break. Give me five minutes. I'll be back. So I, I think there is something about saying to the juniors, um, perhaps seek forgiveness rather than seek permission. Just get, get on and do it. But work as a team and do it. Make sure you're not the only one who's always been, um, flexible and crafting your day. Bring your whole team onto that journey and then you'll probably all find you're enjoying it. Yeah, I love that. Seek forgiveness rather than permission. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> Colin, I'd love to bring you in here because we've been talking about crafting your role and doing different roles. And Dad was talking about doing some coaching and doing some teaching and doing some leadership. But that's not all there is to job crafting. There's other things involved in job crafting, isn't there? So the first thing to say is job crafting is really important. Over the last two years, I've worked with 30 organisations, some public sector, a lot of private sector. And we've asked a lot of questions about job crafting and other areas of workplace practice, L&D and opportunities for career development and all sorts of other things. And when we throw all that data into a very sophisticated statistical model that happily I don't have to do, I have a colleague who does that for me, who has a PhD in maths, what comes out is that one of the most important factors explaining variance in work engagement, those feelings that we talked about that are really important in terms of invigoration and dedication and absorption that we know are really important for long-term performance. If we want to know what kind of practices support people to feel engaged and well and productive in public and private sector workplaces, job crafting is one of the most powerful ways that we can drive higher and higher levels of engagement, it seems. Maybe we can think a bit more about what does job crafting actually look like? And what might the different components of job crafting be? The classic way of thinking about it from a job resources perspective, a job demand resources perspective, is that job crafting perhaps involves three types of activities. One is people feeling empowered to seek resources. Again, apologies for my jargon here. As I said earlier, by job resources, all we really mean it are things like learning opportunities, having more control over your work, having the opportunity to get really great feedback and support. One thing that can fall under job crafting is to seek more resources, to basically feel that you have, you have the, the permission, to give yourself the permission, that if you're not content with your feedback, to ask for more or different feedback. If you're not content with your learning opportunities, to ask for, that, for more learning or different learning opportunities, to ask for the opportunity to build networks or work within different interdisciplinary spaces. Some forms of resource seeking are very basic. If you feel you haven't got the right kit to do the job, whether it's PPE or IT or anything else, a crafting behavior might be to say to your line manager, I really need the, the additional resources to get this job done well. So that's one area. We call it seeking resources. The second set of questions that we ask in the second area of job crafting practice, sometimes asking for more challenge and seeking more challenges can be an important component of job crafting. Like I said, I'm sure I've got NHS and healthcare professionals and leaders saying, Colin, are you really suggesting I should be encouraging my people to ask to do more? In a way, if the more that we're talking about is the kind of more that people feel like they are taking on a challenge that grows them as a professional and as a person. So that might be attending different kind of meetings or forming, joining additional kind of networks or taking a leadership role within a team that maybe isn't at your at a higher level, but you're kind of stepping up to take on or taking the responsibility to feed in intelligence and information and to shape the practice of your team. 
all of that is essentially taking on more work. Or to some extent, it's taking on more work, but it's really about taking on more challenge. And as counterintuitive as it seems, we have a strong evidence base that suggests that where people feel it's okay for them to step up to take on more challenge, that actually increases their job resources and can have a positive impact on their work engagement. Again, we caveat all of this by saying we fully acknowledge that people are under tremendous pressures and we must try to manage those demands and pressures as much as possible. But that second area of job crafting, of feeling that it's okay to step up and take on additional challenges, seems to be really important for people's growth, engagement and well-being. So we've got seeking resources. I'd like more or different feedback. I'd like more learning opportunities. I'd like more mentorship. We've got seeking challenges. I want to grow into additional challenging activities. And then the last area of job crafting, some people call it reducing demands. We, we tend to use the language of optimizing demands. That's basically saying if something's not your favorite part of a job of your job. Is there a way to reduce the amount of time and energy that you put into that? Can you swap parts of your job with other people? Can you streamline parts of your job to get things done more efficiently? All the kind of activities that Dal talked about in her own practice. So those three areas of personal activity, seeking seeking to take on more challenges in a way that grows you as a person and seeking to optimize or just control the demands of your job are really important areas of job crafting practice. You make some really good points there, Colin. I'm just thinking about that's asking for more challenge. We had a podcast episode recently all about what to do when you're bored and stressed. And I think many people in in healthcare are really stressed because they've got so much work, but they're also quite bored because it's quite repetitive. It's the same, 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 same. And we know one of the ways to well-being is learning. And we know in Maslow's hierarchy, self-actualization is really important. And if you are learning something or being challenged, often that's where you get into flow. And we know flow is absolutely brilliant, isn't it? for well-being, for enjoying stuff, for uh, just for, for life satisfaction, actually. So that absolutely ties in very well with a lot of the well-being evidence, all the stuff around, around happiness at work, too. I'd like to come on and ask what leaders could do, because I think, we, you know, in the, in the audience, we, um, people who are working and are also leaders, and I think all of us have got a, a, a bit of both, haven't we? Kirsten, when you teach leaders about job crafting, what advice do you give them about how to help their teams with this? Because I know a lot of it has to come from the person themselves, but a lot of the objections people will have will say, they'll say, I'd love to do that, but my boss won't let me, or my team is awful, or we're so constrained in what we have to do. I'm just a trainee. I've got all these tick boxes. Nothing will ever change if they're not going to help. Often people do have examples of things that they've done themselves. And often, I guess, some of those examples um, uh, you know, range from leaders and managers actually having those developmental conversations with people on a one-to-one or even on a sort of team um, basis. I also think sometimes what's helpful, and I guess developmental conversations lean into this around coaching conversations, but where there's opportunities for people to access coaches and mentors themselves, whether formal or informal, asking those questions and encouraging people to think about their work. I guess I'd sort of just go back again to actually having this open conversation amongst your team. And actually the team can lean into this a little bit as well by pointing out where people's particular sort of strengths are and how the team can be supporting them with freeing up their time, if that's what it is, to be able to sort of undertake a different piece of work. So those are a couple of ideas. Adele, what do you do with your teams to 
encourage them to take more autonomy and, and craft their own jobs? I think role modeling is a really important one, isn't it? Because of the reality is if I'm burnt out, if I'm not job crafting, if I'm just on this monotonous cycle and not actively talking about the decisions I'm making, they will just see that as their as what they should be doing. I think the second is to really support and nurture good practice. Starting the day with what time do people want breaks? Like, how do you want to work today? Who's going to do what? You know, so you kind of help people to understand why we're having those conversations and really try to nurture and encourage that. So, you know, bring in some of those practices into the shop floor. So actually it becomes just the way they do things as opposed to this is a normal thing that Crazy Dallas decided to do today. I think the third thing is the number of times that I've had conversations of juniors who have FOMO, so fear of missing out. You know, stop saying yes to everything that comes your way. And so I'll say, did you not say yes to me last week and the week before and the week before? Start challenging back a little bit. And actually, when people are having difficulty saying no, or when people are having difficulty with the FOMO, then actually start having a conversation with them about it rather than ignoring it. I also think there's an element of identity in this, isn't there? We all have a version of identity that we want to maintain. And so encouraging the juniors to explore what's going on for themselves and to use it as a a leadership or stroke development opportunity and say, look, do you understand your energy? Do you understand your strengths? Do you understand what makes you tick? What's important to you? What matters to you? So, yeah, use it as an education awareness and development opportunity as well. So I think those are three things I'd probably think about. I love that. I've got a colleague who was a consultant she said that whenever juniors came up to her and asked about doing audits she'd always say well you have you have room for one big project at the moment and if anyone asks you to do anything more you say well I've got this one project it's going to finish here would you like me to drop that and focus on yours or do you want to carry on Colin is saying no part of job crafting is that a sort of recognized aspect of it it seems a bit negative but it might be really important Absolutely. And I think that third component of job crafting in terms of optimizing the demands that your job places on you is one way that employees can sort of get a sense of control over the demands that they either accept and embrace or might have to say, not until I finish this or what would you like me to drop? So I, I think saying no sometimes is an important part of it. One of the risks, I think, around job crafting is that There are people out there who are perhaps wired in a way that they're going to be more proactive in engaging in these kind of activities. My argument is that I think it should be a a priority for leaders and line managers to support employees across a a range of experiences and roles and, and tasks to engage in this kind of crafting activity, because some people won't do it on their own unless we create the opportunity set for people to do it. Hopefully we're not adding to the workload of of managers and leaders. Hopefully we're crafting the workload of leaders and managers. But I think one thing that that we have to think about as as senior clinicians and, and leaders in healthcare is, are we, as has been discussed, are we modeling the kind of behaviors to encourage people to job craft? Are we putting the support in place for our people so that they think it's okay to do that? What would you be advising a a department who was thinking, right, we need to put that support in place to allow people to to job craft? If you were to go in and say, guys, this is what you could do. What are the basics that you would try to put in at a system level there to help people with this? 
I think there is something about actually introducing people to the concept in itself, because actually that often is a bit of a light bulb moment for people to be starting to think about their own roles, what their interests are, their strengths, what are they passionate about, where they might want to go potentially in terms of their career and having that open conversation with colleagues. I think there are probably particular things that could be um, developed to support sort of leaders and managers to have those conversations. So it's, this is not just to benefit the individuals, it's actually to benefit to benefit everyone. And I think it also has knock-on effects in terms of retention of staff as well because actually if you're given those opportunities um, while you're in training at a particular institution you think well gosh you know when it comes to applying for consultant positions I'd really rather like to kind of go back there and it's thinking beyond just the um, the day-to-day sort of clinical work it's actually thinking about broadening people's skills and insights and developing that leadership. Colin, what have you seen in, in other organisations, not just healthcare, that, that has worked sort of system-wide to try and embed this? The conversation I often have with businesses around this is framed by the question, is it okay to ask? Because before we get to the ability of people to, to job craft, I think where there's, where there's a challenge in organisations is that very often leaders and managers don't communicate to people that it's okay to ask for this stuff. So that's the first question to ask yourself as a leader or manager, before we get to a conversation about the cost benefit and the business case for investing in mentoring or different forms of L&D or different forms of feedback, do people feel, feel it's okay to ask if they're not happy with those job resources? Do people feel it's okay to ask for challenge? The example I often give to private sector organizations is, what would happen if a junior member of your team said, oh, this board meeting, I know it's well above my pay grade, but can I sit in on it? I might learn something. That's basically asking to do more work for free. It's asking for more challenge to grow yourself as a person. And there are lots of businesses out there and organisations out there where such requests are not welcomed and not encouraged. And so I think that that would be my first thing. Create a context where people know it's okay to ask. And then the second thing I think is be prepared to respond. Because where we sometimes see a big problem is where employees are encouraged to job craft and then request the mentoring or the development or the additional challenge. And then the organization hasn't actually put the resource in place to deliver that for them. So if you're going to ask people to do this, then have a plan about how you're going to respond to the requests that people make. Just a reflection, Colin, I, I work with a lot of leaders and managers that that do worry about letting people ask because they feel that if someone is allowed to ask for more resources, and then they have to provide them then it's going to be more work for them. And so they get very worried about even raising it or letting anybody ask for this stuff because they feel so responsible. What would you say to someone that was a leader or manager thinks, I don't have any more resources. There is nothing I can do. So telling them that it's okay to ask would just be a complete disaster. I hear you. As I was saying, I think this conversation needs to make it clear to people that we don't have a magic money tree and not every request is going to be actionable. But for instance, if one of your employees comes and says, The way that we do feedback in our team really doesn't seem to work for me or other team members. That's a minimal investment for leaders to rethink about, are we doing feedback the most effective way or could we do it in a different way? So I think there there are spaces where minimal investment in leadership and management practice can actually have really important impacts on how people feel able to craft their work. So 
I accepted that there are the, the resource constraints. There, if we can have a conversation about the kind of spaces in which it's possible to support people to craft, and then encourage people to think it's okay to craft into those spaces so that there's an alignment between what is realistic and actionable within the organization or team, but at the same time, we're not we're not removing the okay to ask. It strikes me that in order to job craft well and efficiently, you do really need to understand yourself and what would make make you happy and bring joy into your life. And someone has put in the comments, lack of emotional intelligence and self-assessment skills is not uncommon in medical professionals. Often very passionate about their work, but they often need help to see the bigger picture, often have a victim or entitlement mindset. And how can we encourage medical professionals, medical leaders, to know themselves a bit more, to actually understand what would make their jobs better for themselves so that they can take the action. Because often it is a lack of understanding about ourselves. I think there are practical things that you can do as well in terms of sort of 360 degree feedback. Unfortunately, I think sometimes 360 degree feedback doesn't sort of focus enough on, I guess, the the, the leadership side of things. I mean, quick plug for the FMLM 360 um, here, obviously, which has been designed with that sort of purpose in mind. There are different sort of psychometrics and stuff out there that can be helpful, but there's a huge variety. But actually, I think sometimes just asking people, you know, having conversations, say, well, you've known me for a while. You've seen sort of, you know, how I work. You don't need tools to do that. You can just have a conversation and say, what what do you think are my strengths? And what do you think I could be doing more of? What opportunities have you seen out there? So I think some sort of fairly simple things like that can be actually quite effective. And asking a range of people as well is important, not just your mates. Thank you. And there are all, all sorts of sort of assessments and things online, like strength finders and things like that, which I found immensely helpful myself. So we are really, really nearly out of time. I was going to ask you for three top tips each, but I'm just going to go around and ask you for one top tip. So you've only got one. <laughs> Colin, what's your one top tip for promoting job crafting at work? Okay, so the first thing I would say is I realise everything is an ask and an investment. And the only reason that I'm asking leaders in the NHS to, to do this activity is because we think it's really important to people's engagement and performance. Put the structures and communications in place where it's okay for your people to ask to engage in job crafting. Thank you. Dal, your one top tip. Yeah, I'd say, like, you know, if you really want to try to get to do more of what you like and what really matters to you, then really engage in job crafting because that's a way to get there. Thank you. And Kirsten? One of the questions that Amy Rosneski sort of asked um, her group, but she's the person that's led this particular piece of research, is if you just think for a second, what's the most meaningful and enjoyable aspect of your work today? And what could you do to make that aspect more possible in your work? Love it. That's a great question. Thank you. Thank you so much, all of you, for being here. We've had so many different questions in the chat. We haven't been able to get to all of them, but our hope is that we're going to record some more podcast episodes and send out to people maybe thinking about some other aspects of this. So I'm sure this conversation will continue. Please get in touch with us if you have any questions or particular topics you'd like us to to consider either via FMLM or hello at youarenotafrog.com. And it just remains for me to say thank you so much to Colin and to Dell and to Kirsten for being with us today. Thank you for everybody watching live and on Catch Up. And I hope that's been really helpful. So thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, we provide a self-coaching CPD workbook for every episode. You can sign up for it via the link in the show notes. 
And if this episode was helpful, then please share it with a friend. Get in touch with any comments or suggestions at hello at youarenotafrog.com. I love to hear from you. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you're listening. It really helps. Bye for now.